Welcome to the Political Risk Brief, where we explore the intersection of policy, politics, economics, and demography. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs. Today's topic, America's Imperial City, Washington, D.C.'s Gilded Age. Joining me as always, my colleagues, Johnny Fluger. Great to be here, Jonathan. And Jeremy Furchgott. Great to be here. Thank you. Today's subject is looking at one of the key underlying trends that influences so much of what happens in Washington, D.C., and that is the growing chasm between Washington, D.C. and its residents and what we'll call the average American. And this gap, ideologically and economically, increasingly distorts the nation's political life. In recent decades, Washington, D.C. has emerged as a remarkably unrepresentative enclave. And we explore the subject in our most recent political risk brief, which you can find at our website, baronpa.com. And beginning in about the 1950s and accelerating dramatically about 15 or 20 years ago, the wealth and the ideology of Washington, D.C. began to depart dramatically from the median point of the American population. Now, this is a trend that has been clear in many, many cities throughout the United States. It is a well-covered phenomenon of high-density areas increasing in prosperity and moving to the left ideologically relative to more exurban and rural areas. But the difference is that all those other cities, except for Washington, D.C., are not intended to be the capital of a continent-spanning nation. And so when the nation's capital becomes unrepresentative, ideologically and economically, that presents a special challenge to a nation with the government that we have in the United States. This is our topic today. Now, this trend is a little difficult to document specifically. Today in this discussion, we're going to look at some of the key metrics that we think describe and capture precisely what is going on. But we're really dealing with a category of factors, a category of forces that are really the unwritten rules, the largely undocumented trends that shape politics and policymaking in Washington, D.C. Of course, there are formal structures. There are rules. There are norms that are defined in law in other places that guide policymaking, rulemaking, etc. But those things exist in a context of sociology, of behaviors, of interests that are not clearly written down and are ever-changing. And so, yes, the schoolhouse rock version of the American political system, you know, how a bill becomes a law, is important and in some cases decisive, but American politics cannot be understood only on that basis. And so, Johnny, I want to turn to you for one of our leading experts on the dynamics of the community that is Washington, D.C., on how you, how we at the firm think of these unwritten rules, these trends and unspoken norms that are so important to the life of the nation's capital. Jonathan, one of the remarkable gaps in conventional analysis of politics is the view that money is the force behind everything, that wealthy philanthropists and corporate power centers really drive the action here in the District of Columbia. In our view, there is a sociocultural inclination that originated with World War II and has persisted through today. And that is reflected in the fact that the District of Columbia, among all cities in this country, has the highest percentage of adults with graduate degrees. It's not at the very top of where college-educated adults live, but it is at the very top of where college-educated adults with secondary degrees 
live. And that phenomenon, which I think was brought to fruition by the Cold War and the development of nuclear energy and all of the federally funded research and development centers that went along with it, and the practice of economics to temper the business cycle, et cetera, et cetera. That gives policymaking in Washington much more of a character of rational control by a set of professional decision makers than the character of backroom Tammany Hall bosses smoking cigars, deciding at the whim of moneyed interests what is going to occur next. And I think that there used to be among some analysts a sense of this, that there has been at times a peculiar culture to the decision-making class in Washington, and that culture needed to be understood on its own terms. One of the most interesting books that I came across over the last decade is a work of both political science and history that was published, I believe, in 1966, called The Washington Community, 1800 to 1828, by James Sterling Young, who was a professor at the University of Virginia and before that, Columbia University. The book received a Bancroft Award, which is the flagship award for books in American history and the history of American diplomacy. And in that work, Young had this to say, of the initial group of people who settled here in the district during the Jeffersonian era, quote, the governing group at Washington, like virtually all other enduring groups, has an inner life of its own, a special culture which carries with it prescriptions and cues for behavior that may be far more explicit than those originating outside the group, and no less consequential for the conduct of government, close quote. I think that's what we're getting at. And that tradition, I think, has been lost. And it's important for us to think along those lines. And for those who are interested, I found the book at Second Story Books on P Street. A good tip. So for much of the nation's history, although Washington, D.C. did have its own distinct community, as Young describes, we would argue that Washington, D.C. was much closer to the meeting of the nation economically and ideologically. And what's happened, especially in the last, we'll call it 30 to 50 years, is that is no longer the case, that Washington, D.C. is dramatically removed from the median household income and the midpoint of the American political system as revealed by presidential vote preference. And so if it's the case that the culture in Washington matters as much as the formal structures and rules of government, and if it's the case that the alignment or misalignment between the economic and ideological character of the people who reside in Washington, if that matters, then it's important to think about, well, what is the ideological and economic profile of the typical Washingtonian, especially the Washingtonian who serves in or surrounds government. And Jeremy, I'd like to turn to you as we did our research for the political risk brief that appears on the website and for this conversation. What should the audience understand about that profile? I think it's helpful to go back to around the last major economic downturn a little over 10 years ago and look at that era because I think it provides an interesting window into where things may be headed now with concerns about the economy in 2022. So in 2010, there was a 
poll done by Politico that looked at the opinions of D.C. elites compared to ordinary Americans. And there are several things that I'll point out. First of all, 44% of D.C. elites thought that the national economy was on the right track compared to 24% of Americans overall. So there was a very wide disparity in terms of people's views of the state of the economy, and that's interesting to think about in the coming years. There were other things that were perhaps even more telling. 74% of D.C. elites said that they felt the current economic downturn less than most Americans. So there was a certain realization among this D.C. elite class that they were insulated from what was happening to the rest of the United States. So what we're pointing out we think is underappreciated, but there's a certain amount of self-awareness of this isolation between D.C. elites and the rest of the country. And Jeremy, that was borne out, the stat that I quoted about residents with grad degrees. The city with the lowest percentage of residents with grad degrees is Detroit. And you think about that, you think about Detroit during the financial crisis when two of the three big three auto companies went bankrupt and the third kind of hung by, that is evocative of the trend we're describing. Jeremy, when we examine median household income to start at an important place, as well as housing values, what does the data tell us about how Washington, D.C. matches up with the rest of the country or the median of the rest of the country? Well, there are a lot of different ways to slice the data. You know, you could take a look at the top 1,000 zip codes in the country by median income, for example. There are other ways to cut it off. But generally what you see is that the D.C. area has a number of very wealthy counties, really a disproportionately high number of wealthy counties in the United States in the D.C. area. But what's more interesting is if you go to the zip code level, there are certainly wealthy zip codes in the D.C. area, but not really ultra-wealthy zip codes the way you see in certain other cities. So there's a certain character to the wealth that you see in D.C., which is different from the wealth that you see in certain other cities. So one thing that I encourage our listeners to think about is not to think about D.C. as just a wealthy enclave. I mean, it may be a wealthy enclave, but there's a certain character to that wealth. And understanding the character to that wealth and some of the norms that we're talking about, it helps us understand the governing class of this nation and where we're headed as a country. And so the character of wealth in D.C. is that you tend to have people with a lot of graduate degrees. So you end up with a lot of wealthy professionals, a very different type of wealth that you have in other cities in the United States where Many of the wealthy may not have graduate degrees, may not have college degrees, and may have entrepreneurial career paths that really had nothing to do with elite educational credentials in any way. The number varies by year, but as Jeremy alluded to, approximately 10 of the 20 wealthiest counties by median income are in the D.C. area. But we have, relative to New York and California, relatively fewer residents of the D.C. area on lists like the Forbes 400. And the reason for that is the wealth is this, as Jeremy indicated, upper middle class, upper class professional wealth, not the gazillionaire wealth that you see in Fairfield County, Connecticut, or in Marin County, California. Right. It's sort of the hyper-educated, poor-rich who tend to be some of the most stressed and resentful people in our society because even though they, by any reasonable measure, make quite a bit of money, they don't make enough money to really be freed of materialist concerns, especially when they're paying huge amounts of money for 
education for their kids and, you know, K through 12 as well as higher education. But just to give sort of a baseline, at the pre-pandemic peak, Washington, D.C.'s median household income reached $93,000, and that's compared to $69,000 for the country overall. So that's just a baseline. And if we look at Northwest Washington, where many of the people most deeply involved in running and otherwise surrounding the government reside, that number, the median household income was $159,000. So that gives you a sense of the gap between, again, the national median and what goes on in Washington, D.C. And so, John, I think you make a very important point. When you combine the incidence of graduate degrees, the highest in the country, with this median income gap, and then you look at the ideological overlay on top of that, which often accompanies education, that combination, not only the high income, but the range of income that we discuss, which is high but not ultra-wealthy, the graduate degrees, and then this surge to the left, that cocktail of demographic traits, I think, produces a very particular environment, a very particular sociology, which explains a lot of what goes on in Washington. And I want to just sort of explore for a minute, we talk about the partisan character of Washington. If we take as just a useful benchmark, Republican vote share in presidential elections between 1976 and 2016, what you see is the percent of Washington, D.C. voting for Republicans absolutely plummeting. And that's a trend that started, believe it or not, well before Donald Trump. So this is not a phenomenon specific to President Trump and his candidacy in 2016. It actually predates that. And when you go and look at the mid-'70s approaching, not quite, but approaching 20 percent of Washington, D.C., was voting for a Republican. And although by no means an overwhelming minority, it was enough of a minority that it did cause the town to have a bipartisan character. You still had one in five people, roughly, and I would say it was even more than that among elites who were involved in the governing class, engaged in governmental or government-related activities. And so now, if we look at 2016, and that number has dropped to something like four, five, six percent, which we would consider trace element levels. As we joke, that's a North Korean number. That really has altered how Washington, D.C. conducts itself and how it sees itself. It wasn't that long ago that there was a Republican member of the D.C. City Council, Carol Schwartz, not a conservative, but a Republican. It wasn't long ago that Connie Morello was the congresswoman from suburban Montgomery County. It wasn't that long ago that Frank Wolf represented suburban Fairfax County. These are trends, Jonathan, that have accelerated over the last 20, 25 years since the dot-com bubble and the explosion of wealth in defense contracting as a result of the global war on terror. Yeah, so when the percentage of voters in the district between 1976 and 2016 plummets by 75% into the low single digits, that matters, and that has mattered quite a bit. And that's occurred in a period when the district's population has been increasing steadily since Anthony Williams became mayor of D.C. in 1998. It's not as if, as a result of flight due to crime or other factors, the number of families in the district is increasing or people who might demographically be more likely to have a Republican affiliation. It's actually the population's been increasing substantially and is climbing back toward its 1950 peak. I think if you even 
go beyond the district itself and you look at the ring of counties that's most proximate to D.C., you see the same phenomenon. So it's not as if the Republicans just left the district and moved over to Fairfax or Montgomery County. You look at the vote shares for Republicans in counties such as Arlington, Fairfax, or Montgomery. It's also plummeted in the past 20 or 30 years. So there's some kind of broader phenomenon that's shaping the region. That's exactly right, Jeremy. And so if you look at the 2020 presidential election, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area ranked the second most Democratic on the entire East Coast, surpassed only by Pittsfield, Massachusetts. So that is, I think, a very important illustration of the dynamic we're talking about. And so what you have resulting from all that is a monoculture. You have an environment in Washington, D.C. that is almost entirely and significantly to the left of center. And that monoculture has a couple important implications. The first is it makes it increasingly hard for Washington to accept electoral outcomes that it does not approve of. Secondly, because of that disapproval, it puts Washington, D.C. in tension with about half the national electorate. And that is an unhealthy condition. And so we see in the last several years an intensification of that trend. It's almost self-reinforcing. And the destination does not look particularly attractive. And so that really could have very, very important consequences for how the nation is governed and even the popular legitimacy of the federal government itself. It's led to a lot of volatility in decision-making. One of the Trump administration's initiatives was to move certain federal agencies outside of Washington. And there was an upheaval among the employees of these agencies a couple agencies at the Agriculture Department, including the Agricultural Research Service, and then the Bureau of Land Management in the Department of the Interior. And the Biden administration came in and left the Agricultural Research Service in Kansas City, but moved the Bureau of Land Management back from Grand Junction, Colorado, here to the district. So just imagine you're an employee at one of these agencies, and you move halfway across the country, and then 50-50, you get moved back to D.C. after a year or two. That's an indication of the kinds of things that we believe are going to intensify and accelerate in the years ahead, unfortunately. And I think if you look at the Obama administration, again, there was this natural alignment between the Obama administration and the Washington, D.C.-based federal workforce. And in fact, the head of the Office of Personal Management John Berry in 2009, he said, the stars are aligned in describing the new administration, the Obama administration, with the federal workforce. And again, the issue is not whether it's left or right. The issue is that kind of distortive policy, right, that kind of trend, which aligns one of the political parties with the permanent governing class, is fundamentally unhealthy. So it's not just the case that it's to the left. If the federal government were located in Garfield, Montana, where Donald Trump received, I want to say, approaching 95% of the vote, whereabouts plus or minus, that would be equally unhealthy. And so it's not a matter of rooting for one team or the other. It's this question of misalignment. I think that as more and more of the economy becomes linked to the federal government through federal procurement and the increased staff size of the federal government, more and more families have a family member who works for the federal government. That also creates a really important phenomenon where you have parts of the country geographically and ideologically that 
are effectively locked out of the wealth creation that is associated with the federal government. There's a major deficiency, Jonathan, to the clubbiness that we increasingly find in terms of the exercise of oversight responsibility by the federal government. So I think it's fair to say that after the financial crisis, there was not really a reckoning with the conduct of the likes of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because of the importance of those two corporations to Washington elites and Washington elites service in the leadership of those corporations. And I think there's a similar dynamic that occurs when a Trump administration comes in and moves a federal agency across the country, which is to say puts it at remove from the oversight capability of the rest of the federal government. In both cases, the oversight that is meant to occur and ensure that taxpayer dollars get used effectively, that there is not corruption and procurement, et cetera, et cetera, really does not occur. And I think you can understand the ballooning federal budget in part from the perspective of our boomtown thesis about what's occurring in D.C. So many people now, as the statistics show, are profiting not to billionaire status, uh, but profiting nonetheless from the spending that's occurring here, that there really is much less, in my view, oversight relative to how things used to be, say, before 1994, before the Gingrich Revolution. And I think there is a intensification that happens when the federal workforce in this monoculture revolts against a Republican president. And the Washington Post reported, I think it was within two weeks of President Trump's election, quote, federal workers are in regular consultation with recently departed Obama-era political appointees about what they can do to push back against the new president's initiatives, end quote. That justifies or actually it invites Republican administrations to go outside of norms, right, to be even more aggressive in attacking Washington. And of course, Republicans have been attacking Washington for a very, very long time, going back to Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. But this really makes the stakes much, much higher and paves the way for a far more contentious, unpredictable relationship. And we're beginning to see that already. I think one of the indications of that was the introduction of legislation by a congressman from Georgia, Republican Andrew Clyde, to repeal the Home Rule Act that grants the district its local government autonomy. I think that would have been unheard of in the era when Tony Williams was mayor of D.C. or Adrian Fenty was mayor of D.C. But as this divergence between the district and the average American has grown starker. Things that were laughable or beyond the pale have become possible to such an extent in this case that Eleanor Holmes Norton said, it's something to be extremely concerned about because the district may well find itself in the minority next term, meaning next term of Congress. The idea of revoking home rule is just unthinkable 20, 30 years ago. And I think Washington, D.C., as a community, dramatically underestimates the possibility that if the Washington monoculture rejects one of the political parties, that political party, when it's in power, will reject the monoculture. And so there are retaliatory scenarios that should not be taken lightly. 
Recently, in February of 2022, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and other Republicans promised to hold D.C. Democratic Mayor Muriel Bowser accountable for implementing policies that they believe are hurting the nation's capital if the GOP wins back the majority. McCarthy said, What the Democrats have done by defunding the police, what the Democrats have done about electing DAs that are picking and choosing what law they want to uphold, um, Just last week, you had a shooting and a murder in Georgetown. Yes. There's not an element of this community that people feel safe in. And I don't care where you live. You should be safe. You should have the right to feel safe. Your children should be able to walk to school safely. You should be able to go to the store safely. And these are the concerns. If it becomes out of hand, then there's got to be greater control taken over to provide the safety for the nation's capital. And what's interesting about this, Jonathan, is it's not just a reversal of something that's been in place for 50 years, but it's a poke in the eye of the whole D.C. statehood campaign that's been central to progressive politics in this city and nationally over the last however many years. It at least was the case previously that if you were a resident of the District of Columbia with a car registered here, you could opt out from having a license plate that reads taxation without representation, meaning without the tagline that indicated discontent with the district not having a vote in Congress. And there were people who still for some years after those license plates proliferated, the taxation without representation license plates proliferated, were able to get the older license plate motto which was something like a capital city, Washington, D.C., a capital city. But the last time I heard about this, it was indicated to me that that's no longer possible. And that's a small representation of the monoculture, Jonathan. But even that point, Johnny, that phrase, taxation without representation, you see it as an older version of, I guess, what now we would say has become the monoculture. That phrase itself was this hybrid between a, an anti-taxation view and a pro-representation view. It was a kind of compromise statement, I think, in a sense, whereas nowadays nobody really complains about the taxation. They only focus on the representation. So you see the statehood movement itself, has, I think, has veered in a certain direction over the past couple decades. And I think, again, this phenomenon is not likely to abate anytime soon. If we imagine, for example, a Republican president sometime this decade— And we consider potential candidates on the Republican side who are very well credentialed, both academically as well as in their government service, names such as a Ron DeSantis or a Mike Pompeo or a Tom Cotton or a Josh Hawley. Whatever one thinks of these individuals, they all have very impressive degrees and have relatively long and serious service in government at the state and or federal levels, but I don't think any of those individuals would be meaningfully better received by the monoculture than Donald Trump. In fact, I think there's a chance they would be worse received as the monoculture becomes more and more intolerant of anything that departs from the monoculture. So I think this is not a trend specific to any individual, but will transcend Republican administrations for the foreseeable future. Let's move, gentlemen, to implications, which I think are fascinating although in some cases disturbing. And there are three that I'd like us to explore in this final segment of the podcast. The first is what we call red state activism. 
I think we've seen this during COVID with the opposition of many red state Republican officials to the COVID policies that were promulgated by the federal government, including by the Trump administration. And there are a lot of illustrative quotes. Some of the best, I think, have come from Florida Governor DeSantis, whom you mentioned previously, Jonathan. In one quote, he said, Joe Biden suggests that if you don't do lockdown policies, then you should, quote, get out of the way. But let me tell you this. If you're coming after the rights of parents in Florida, I'm standing in your way. I'm not going to let you get away with it. If you're trying to deny kids a proper in-person education, I'm going to stand in your way and I'm going to stand up for the kids in Florida. If you're trying to restrict people, impose mandates, if you're trying to ruin their jobs and their livelihoods and their small business, if you are trying to lock people down, I am standing in your way and I'm standing for the people of Florida. One of the signals of the gap between Washington and the rest of the country which is a longer conversation in and of itself, is the status of Anthony Fauci in the Washington area and his reception outside of the Washington area. There were a lot of signs in the Washington area valorizing him, portraying him as a hero at the beginning of the pandemic in the D.C. area. And outside of the Washington area, there was a lot of criticism of him, scrutiny of him, scrutiny of his tenure, and scrutiny of the length of his tenure, And I think that's an indication of how in the D.C. area, the expertise of an individual is very important. And outside of the D.C. area, the expertise maybe matters less. And I think people also misjudge the boundaries of potential red state activism. I mean this. It's very possible that red state activism will be more aggressive under a Republican president than under a Democratic president because if that Republican president, whether it's a DeSantis or a Pompeo or a Hawley or someone else, is thwarted by the monoculture, that will drive red state Republican governors to double down to support the Republican president in Washington. So it's not that a Republican president in Washington will somehow relieve this tension. In fact, it could exacerbate the tension. And I think the red state activism is a lot harder to predict than what happens in D.C. among conservative institutions within the district. I think if you wanted to take a look at what major Republican organizations or conservative organizations in D.C. are doing on any given issue, it's fairly straightforward. There are a dozen or so organizations to look at and what they're going to do is usually fairly predictable. What we've seen in the past few years is really an explosion of state-level activity that makes it a lot harder to track what is happening on the right. I think that this creates a major challenge for government affairs. In many large companies, there's a head of government affairs in D.C. who's expected to directly or through their staff keep abreast of what's happening politically in D.C., both on the left and on the right. You rarely, if ever, find a Democrat head of government affairs and a Republican head of government affairs. There's this idea that the head of government affairs should be able to cover what's happening on both sides of the aisle in D.C., and sometimes you'll have a separate head of state government affairs. And with a lot of -of right-of-center activism being shifted from D.C. to red states, 
the government affairs function in large companies is just becoming more complicated because you now have to fuse or integrate what's happening in D.C. with what's happening outside of D.C. It's a lot harder for any one person to keep track of what's happening in multiple different state capitals plus D.C. So there could be some interesting new challenges for the government affairs industry. And I think, Jeremy, that it used to be that almost exclusively Democrats used the force of preemption to drive national policy. So Democrats used to, and Democratic strategists and interests would go to various states. They would pass a patchwork of laws, implement a patchwork of regulations on a given issue. And of course, businesses found it very difficult to comply with the patchwork. And so that would create pressure for a preemptive national standard. And that would create momentum for a national law that to some degree would codify the democratic left of center approach on a given issue. And so that kind of strategy used to be used almost entirely by Democrats. But more recently, Republicans have awoken to this approach. And now they are using preemption. And we see more and more Republican governors willing to create the patchwork, willing to create more compliance and other costs for business. And if that drives a federal preemptive standard with a legislative or regulatory that serves Republican interests or right-of-center interests, maybe to the detriment of business, they're fine with that in a way they would not have been years ago. As one little indication of the state of red state activism, it's my understanding that the Texas Public Policy Foundation which is a state-level think tank in Texas, has close to or maybe upwards of 100 employees, which is really a tremendous size for a state-level think tank. I think it's a great exemplar of what's happening in right-of-center policy circles at the state level. And look at what Republican office holders, state office holders in Florida, in Texas, in Missouri, and other states are doing on issues like tech and antitrust, questions that they almost never engaged in the past. So I think we definitely see this red state activism not only emerging, but accelerating and something to watch. I want to go to our second implication, which is the idea of breakup. Republican senators have called for moving agencies out of Washington, D.C. For example, Senator Josh Hawley and Senator Marsha Blackburn introduced the Helping Infrastructure Restore the Economy, or HIRE Act, in 2019, which would move 90 percent of the positions in 10 executive departments from D.C. to economically distressed parts of the country. So that's consistent with what we saw in the Trump administration with the Bureau of Land Management and the Agricultural Research Service in the in, in USDA, which is to say, let's take the largesse of these government agencies and their employees and move them to places that are more representative of the wealth and interests and habits of the country as a whole. And let's redistribute those resources to people who need them more. And let's impact the people who are in positions of power so they become more representative of the average American. One potential implication of this kind of breakup is if you look at the politics around efforts to close military installations, there's tremendous pushback from members of Congress whose districts would be affected by it. So one can imagine a future scenario in which certain departments or agencies have been moved out of D.C. and then they end up accounting for so many jobs and so much local economic activity that it actually ends up being very difficult to then move them back to D.C. And so just looking at the local politics around military installation location, I think could be an interesting window to where things may head. And a clever Republican president would note that 
Democratic seats in the House are very concentrated. So a small number of states disproportionately account for the numbers of the Democratic caucus in the House. You think about California, of course. You think about New York. think about Illinois. All he or she might have to do is give one or two departments to a California, to a New York. You combine that with giving departments to a bunch of Republican states. You move maybe the Department of Defense to Texas. You can imagine moving the Department of Commerce somewhere to Arizona or maybe it's somewhere else. doesn't really matter. The point is you could forge an interesting bipartisan coalition based around disaggregating Washington, a breakup of Washington's monopoly power over the public policy system. And to your point, Jeremy, that could be very, very attractive in terms of local job creation, all that comes along with it. So I don't think the breakup scenario is nearly as far-fetched as many might assume. I want to move to a third, perhaps the lowest probability scenario, which would be a relocation of the nation's capital under certain circumstances. And what I mean is that if you had a Republican president and local law enforcement decided not to protect the White House or members of the administration from civil disorder, it might be that a Republican president such as DeSantis might end up moving the capital effectively to their home state, to a Florida, or if they were from Texas there, or if they're from Missouri to there, or if they were a Mike Pompeo to the Midwest. I don't think that's at all a completely outlandish scenario. It might not be a formal relocation of the nation's capital, but it might be an effective relocation of the nation's capital. And for local D.C. area history buffs, I think, Jonathan, what you're pointing to is similar to, say, Brookville, Maryland, which I believe was technically the seat of the U.S. federal government for a period during the 1812 war. So I think you're pointing to that type of precedence. And if you look at how Republicans depend so heavily on non-urban, non-elite areas for their vote share, what more powerful political statement would there be than simply saying, you know what, I, President so-and-so, Republican, I reject the monoculture. I'm no longer going to reward the monoculture. I'm taking my administration somewhere else. The disaggregation of federal government functions from Washington, D.C. is totally unanticipated by corporate America. So as we conclude our discussion today, I think it is useful to go all the way back to the nation's founding and just close with a citation of how the founders thought of the nation's capital. And they were very deliberate in locating the nation's capital at some distance from the nation's financial center, which, of course, at the time in the late 18th century, early 19th century, was New York. And they did that to better reflect the variety of a new, enormous republic. And when there was a motion to establish the capital at, quote, the center of wealth, population, and extent of territory, it was James Madison who said the following, quote, I move to strike out the word wealth because I do not conceive this to be a consideration that ought to have much weight in determining the place where the seat of government ought to be. Government is intended for the accommodation of the citizens at large, end quote. And so as the monoculture grows and intensifies, I think we should pay much greater attention to the consequences, to how that monoculture becomes intolerant and how that intolerance creates backlash, which portends, I think, very, very difficult dynamics for the American political system and for the corporate community trying to manage those tensions. So I want to thank you, Johnny, and you, Jeremy, for a great discussion today. Thank you very much. Great to join. Thank you, Jonathan.
enjoyable as always. I want to thank our audience for joining us, taking the time to listen to us. We always welcome your feedback. If you want to read the written version of this brief, please go to baronpa.com where you can access the written version. You can also find all of our political risk briefs and podcasts. If you have not subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward to having you join us on a future episode of The Political Risk Brief. Thank you.